Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media. I'm your host, Abraham J. Williamson, and today we're going to talk about some best practices in the venture capital space, but also uh, an effort to make it more diverse. And we have the perfect person to help us talk to us uh, about this, Marlon Evans of NextCube. We're going to get into NextCube, the origin, because it's a it's a, uh, it's a fun whose reputation and work precedes it. I've talked to other people in the ecosystem. They have nothing but great things to say about it. But we're going to get it directly from the source today. But before we get into the work, we want to get into the person who kind of got it started off and we we want to rewind the clock back uh, to earlier in your life. Uh, so Marlon, talk to us about earlier, younger childhood Marlon Evans, and if that young child, adolescent aspirations and all would be friends with the person who <laughs> is sitting in front of us today. Yeah, no, I think they'd be, they'd be friends, but they had no idea that I would be landing in a spot where I was running accelerators and leading, leading VC funds that wasn't even on the on the radar, you know, young, young Marlon was all about hoping to be a professional football player and, you know, playing in the NFL for years. And um, so the fact that I'm here where I am now is it would be a surprise to, to young Marlon for sure. So where did that ambition for the NFL come from? Why was that your focus? Yeah, I mean, I think just, you know, growing up, I was always pretty good at sports. I was, you know, faster than the other kids in, in school. So it just felt like it was something that was, uh, you, you know, gifted for me, you know, to do at some point in my career. And then as you kind of progress and you get to the different levels, you realize, oh, there was a lot of other fast kids out there, too. So, you know, you realize that the, you know, the competition is is pretty stiff. This is a hot topic today. I know you didn't come in necessarily to talk about this, <laughs> but does it help with conversations with athletes? I think people think wealthy athletes, they should be investing in funds like yours. And then do you think it gives you an advantage in the lessons you learn that are transferable into what you're doing now. Yeah, I definitely think on the latter in terms of um, just understanding on what it means to be a part of a team and how sometimes you have to lead from behind. You're not always out out in front, and how can you make sure that everybody on the team feels like they're adding value? And so I think all of those things are important, both as an investor, but then also having that you know empathy as you're working with founders, understanding not only are they trying to launch and lead their their business and hit the metrics that they need to be successful but they got to bring others along the way and how do you do that effectively and and in a way that's going to inspire folks to like our coaches would say you know hey you got to run through the wall for your your teammates so how do you get to that point so what position did you play so i was a receiver and kick returner grew up you know idolizing the you know now that i'm out here in the bay area it's kind of ironic I um, was a fan of the Washington you know, team, obviously, but we would come up against the, the 49ers quite a bit. You know, fast forward down, down the way, I ended up running the foundation for Ronnie Lott, you know, one of the most famous 49ers of all time. So I had to become a fan of that. And then also uh, when I came out to play football at, at Stanford, my coach was Bill Walsh, who was you know, the legendary coach for the 49ers. So I ended up 
kind of adopting the the Niners as my team. Very cool. And you landed here, but we will get back to that in a second. I want to stick with your Washington days, your DMV days. So uh, maybe this is the case or maybe it happened later when you when you came out here for for university. But talk about your earliest experiences with technology. You know, the jocks typically don't find themselves near computers. At least that's changing now. But maybe back then, I don't know what the case was. But when did you first start to get into technology and trade, you know, your pads for, you know, the the nerdier side of things? Yeah, no, I mean, I, so I, I pursued it all the way through, obviously, college. And then I was able to Signed as a free agent, went to Carolina, and then I went to, got cut by them, uh, went to Indianapolis, got cut by them, started to see a pattern forming in terms of my my prospects, um, and actually just randomly got a call. I was in Indianapolis, um, my then girlfriend at the time, soon to be fiance, soon to be wife of 24 years now. Wow came with me and I said, hey, you know, I got cut from the first team, Caroline, I'm making this team. It's, it's you know, bet, let's go. Um, so she picked up, moved to, uh, moved to Indianapolis and like, probably like four or five months later, I was cut from the team and we were just sitting there saying like, why are we in Indianapolis again? And uh, thankfully I was uh, blessed that Stanford called and said, hey, you know, do you want to come back and work? Um, and they called and said, hey, we have a job in undergraduate admissions. And I was like, I never thought of myself working in the admissions office, but I know Stanford. I could lead tour. You know, I could do those types of things and recruit for, for the university. So I came back. They also were able to find a job for my then fiance. You know, we just kind of called it a a life here in the Bay. Yeah. And that's when right. I was in school, like I kicked myself for not getting more exposure to your point around. You know, just kind of stayed in your circles, and this is what the kind of the athletes were doing, and you know, tech wasn't a big a big part of it um but when i came back just being in silicon valley like you couldn't you couldn't miss it i mean it was everywhere um so started to get more and more exposure towards it and you know realize that to your question earlier a lot of the skills and experiences that i had as an athlete would would serve me well in this space so stanford has a reputation for comp sci computer science did you experience that were you like what world were you in on college you know uh, in college days as far away as possible <laughs> i was a political science major i thought i was going to go to law school which incidentally i did I, I took the lsats and right before i was about to uh you know think about you know what the next step was going to be i got the call to to continue on the football side and then when that was over, I thought, okay, I'll just go to law school. And my sister, who also uh, went to Stanford and then went to uh, law school, she said, do you really love the law? And I was like, eh, I'm just not really. <laughs> okay, cool. So uh, you kind of walked us through a little bit about what you were thinking about. And you were kind of on this windy road, a little bit an exciting one, because not too many people even get a chance to try out and then get called back from a university like Stanford. But now you've ended up... Uh, on the entrepreneurial side in your own right with the fun and the accelerator. And I actually remember some of the earlier days in NextCube because I want to say it was, uh, at least for, for me, early on in the pandemic where I saw y'all were promoting the HBCUs and I joined and I'm just like, wow, there's a lot of talent out here. And the message really resonated with me because even though it was high excellence, high standards, it was also very welcoming and that reminded me of the HBCU vibe. So yeah. talk about what is Next Cube? Where did the idea come from? How are y'all making it work with your unique model and all that? Just walk us through kind of the incubation. Yeah, no, so I uh, joined Next Cube about five years ago. 
Um, the company actually was founded a year earlier. Um, and so they called and said, hey, we're looking for new leadership. Can you take the take the helm? And I, I really liked the model. Um, it was looking at accelerators and investing in, in a different way, really putting the entrepreneur first and saying, okay, if I was a entrepreneur going through this program, what would I want? And let's just deliver against that. So I, so I appreciated that model. But I was really clear with the board. I said, hey, if you're bringing me on, you're getting the whole package. Like, if impact wasn't a part of what you were thinking before, it will be now. If inclusion, it will be now. And they were like, yes, yes, yes. Just you tell us what we need to do. And and that was exciting for me because it was there was an infrastructure there, but there was also a lot of freedom to really explore where how we could create an environment where there was no, to your point earlier, we weren't sacrificing quality. And one of the things that I, we were really intentional about was not saying this is only an accelerator for black and brown people or for females. It was, no, we are capitalists. We're trying to make money. But we're going to create an environment where we get to see all of the talent, not just a, a certain sliver of it. And therefore, we're going to be able to make better decisions and make better investments and see a better return on our on our investment. And so there's no explicit you know, mandate that I got from the board. They're saying we need to see X percent or that. It was just no create an environment that was welcoming and let's get let's select the best companies, which I think is a certain signal back to the market that we were looking at everyone and we still selected a class where 60% of our entire portfolio was either led by females or entrepreneurs of color. And that, of course, outpaces our competition exponentially. And we're still seeing the same returns that they are, you know, as well. So that, to me, was really important to be able to signal to Silicon Valley, if you will, that you can come from Howard, North Carolina A&T, schools that may not be on the radar for most investors and still do really well as a, as a portfolio. So the cohort is learning from you and your team. What did you learn from that first cohort where you took that new approach that, you know, all in inclusive? What did you learn from that first, first cohort? Oh man, that's a great, Great question. I think what what we learned is um, a lot of the same, you know, challenges that entrepreneurs from kind of predominantly white institutions or majority are are facing are just they're still there. Like they don't go away because of you know your your background, um, and some of them are even ex, you know it's exacerbated in many cases in terms of. You know, thinking about issues that just things that some founders take for granted. Like what? Like you got my curiosity yeah, peak now. Like so, what? so I think part of what we had to really push was to think bigger, mm-hmm. which you know is somewhat counter to like you're getting into entrepreneurship, but it's like you would think, oh, it's world domination. You know, I'm going to create this business and we're going to scale and it's going to be a, a unicorn and here we go. And a lot of times there was like this sense of humility, which you love, right? Like you just about a person, like these are all traits that you would usually admire in people. But, you know, for an entrepreneur and an investor, you're like, well, can I make a 10x return on this 
on this investment? Can I make 20? Can I make 100? Does, is this person thinking big enough for it to make sense for me to come alongside and invest? And we had to, in some cases, kind of push these entrepreneurs to think a little bit big. Like, there's nothing wrong. If you want to create a lifestyle business and that it be successful at it, go for it. Like, we need more of that in our in our community for sure but if you're going to seek like venture investment like you're going to need to convince that person on the other side of the of the table that you're going to generate these outsized returns for them and for f- folks who that is more natural to like that kind of bravado or i i'm going to i can make this happen you know, I'm going to run through what, like, you don't usually have to have that conversation because they're coming to you and you're like, are you really worth a hundred million dollars? Come on. We know that you're not worth it. This PowerPoint is not worth a hundred billion dollars, but that that's how they're, that's how they come to you. And for traditionally marginalized folk, like having that sense is a little bit harder for them to get to. And that's part of what we learned is in, in that process. Do you think it's at all related to a reticence to sell the business or look at the exit? Is that playing into it? I think it's just a, like a realism. And I know it, it's it's a part of, you know, understanding of like where I am and like what my, my resources are currently versus like where I could be if given more opportunity. And I think that's, you know, we could go into the, the years of, of uh, programming, if you will, uh, around that, but um, getting them to think, okay, that's that's where you are now, but where this is where you could be if given X, Y, and Z, and let's start thinking along those lines. And and again, I I hate to to generalize, like it's not a you know a, a rule of of thumb by by any means, but that is one of the kind of the takeaways of yeah, I can you know, hear it from some of the, you know, kind of the investors who we work with and just, you know, getting an understanding of just paint a, just paint a picture for me. Like you, you don't have to be there right now, but what does this look like five, 10 years from now and and dream big and then let's have that conversation. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is the perfect segue into what I want to ask you next. Because again, I was on like, I want to say the information session or one of those early calls where you were like, hey, come apply. And what really struck me at the moment, it was sort of like a come as you are. It doesn't matter what you know. It doesn't matter where you are. You already probably have like a good idea, good business. We're going to teach you what you need to level up. And it was very, I was like, yo, it could be me too. So could you talk about what, people get out of next cube that they don't get elsewhere because there are a lot of accelerators out there people ask me all the time what about this one what about this one what is making next cube unique and what are you going to get that you're not it's going to be hard to find elsewhere yeah so what we tried to do again uh, reverse engineering from what we would have wanted as going through a, a program like this and it's more of if you think kind of boutique consulting like it's personalized it's fully customized to meet the needs of the founder and so every company every company and so there's generic like table stake stuff that we think everybody should should know and understand and if you've already checked the box we're not going to force you to sit through a class on cap table you know 101 but if that's something that you need we have it we can provide that for you but it's more so okay let's sit down let's understand 
where you're trying to back to this kind of plan, like where are you trying to go? What are you going to need to be able to show in order to get to that next milestone? And let's build a program that helps you get there and find humans who have already done it or who have deep subject matter expertise and can help you see around some of those corners and avoid some of those pitfalls. So it's highly personalized. We try to find and build a network of individuals who not only have the deep subject matter expertise, but can empathize with being in the shoes of the of the founder. And then we put those together and and that's and that's we, we kind of springboard from from there. So why HBCUs? Did you notice any difference? I, mean, I think you mentioned, you know, the extra push to think bigger. But did you like why HBCUs? And is that an untapped market? Is there potential? Like, what are you seeing when you look at hundreds of HBCU back companies? Yeah. And so when we first started, it was more of um trying to get an understanding of where we feel like we could add the most value. And so we had this program that was successful. We made investments and the portfolio was doing well. How else could we apply what we were doing? And I'm you know, a big believer of not reinventing the wheel and you know, creating programs for programming you know, sake, just to say we checked the box and oh, look at how great what we're doing, et cetera. And so we, you know, did our did our homework and we went out and we recognized that while there was a lot of great point in time activities happening on HBCU campuses, whether that's a corporation coming in and hosting a pitch competition or a hackathon, there really wasn't that connective tissue, if you will, to say, okay, now what? What do I do with you just got me all excited, now where do I go from here? And so we said, okay, we we do that well. We can provide that next step for those um, for those founders, and and in looking at the landscape and seeing the hundred plus HBCUs, we thought, okay, this this potentially could be a business, real significant business opportunity if others are overlooking this group of talent, and if we can build relationships where we become a resource uh, for these for these founders. When we do come knocking on their door and saying, "Hey, we really like what you're doing. We want to invest," we're gonna we'll have built those relationships to make it feel more seamless than if we were just this outside firm coming in and you know getting in line with with everybody else. So it it was both uh, where do we feel like we can have the greatest impact, and there was this untapped you know market that we think is being, you know, overlooked. So I want to talk about the measures of success and the traction. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. And I don't know how to ask you, but I feel like you're the guy to to answer this particular question. Because there was a recent article that a previous guest, Nasir Chris, he's at 68 Capital. He he was uh, exploring a lot of different ecosystems. He was a nomad for like eight months, just popping in different ecosystems. He's an investor, former founder, but he noticed that there's a difference in sort of the quote unquote founder community and the investor community. And it's difficult to kind of merge those two, especially in the way that you're describing. And I think part of it is because as an investor, you have to say no a lot. And then it gets awkward. How can you, you know, share a drink or, you know, dinner with somebody if it's like, no, now, no tomorrow. It's going to be a big no until this one moment. 
So could you just talk about how you're able to sort of navigate that? If it's true, is that a good thing that that's the way that it is? Like, what do you see the future looking like when it comes to those type of relations? I think it's there's a, a level setting that needs to happen around just, you know, I'm on one side of the table, you're on the other. I have the power as the investor, you're the founder, you have to jump through all these hoops in order to, you know, get to our, our front door. And for me, it's always about creating value throughout the process. So even if we say no, you should feel like you're a better entrepreneur as a result. Like you should just by going through the process, whether it's from a due diligence perspective or just gaining an understanding of, of why we made the decision that we did. And not all the times do you have to agree. I mean, we're by no means the, the experts of all times. And, you know, plenty of times I've spoken to founders and I know they were looking at me sideways and like, oh, you just don't get it. And, you know, yeah, I, could, I could sense that they were getting frustrated. And for me, like I that that's where I, the kind of the athlete comes out in me. And just that I'm so when you grow up playing, you're just so used to hearing from coaches like you're not doing that right. <laughs> and like you build up like this understanding or thick skin, whatever you want to call it. of just like, no, this person is trying to help me be my best self. And that's not always the case, but our goal as a, as a company is to be able to communicate that to founders in such a way that it's like, Hey, we want you to be successful, whether it's with us or, you know, not with us and trying to always feel like there's a, there's a way that we can be supportive to them, even if it's not through through an actual investment. If that's you know connecting them with other potential investors where it's a better fit. If it's you know enrolling in one of our acceleration programs that's you know non dilutive and more about you know education than it is about investment, then that's another you know pathway as well. But I I never want to feel like it's like the power dynamic is because the reality is, is that I should be selling the founder as much as they're selling me. Like if we want to make an investment, we need to be able to show why us and not the other 10 investors that are, are surely going to, you know, want to invest in the company. And, and so I think sometimes the founders maybe underestimate, you know, that, that it's a, that it should really be a give and take. Have you had to do that? Have you had to compete to be on somebody's cap table? And if so, when did it work out? When did it different? Like, Peel back that onion a little bit. Yeah, no, I think for sure, like because there are other accelerators out there. I mean, we would lose um, folks to Y Combinator and Techstars, and you know their their brands, you know, are are much more established. They've been at it for longer than than we have. We feel like we just have a completely different you know value proposition. So that's I'll I'll never tell someone, oh, you shouldn't do that. You sh-. It's we may be a good option for you, and this is why. Um, but yeah. For, you know, there are times where the founder is just like, hey, look, I like what you guys are doing, but, you know, this deal is more money and more prestige. I'm like, <laughs> you know, they go for it. Right. And, you know, still hopefully keeping that dialogue open to where maybe we can be helpful to them in the future. You ever have people come back? I would say less of a boomerang bank, but definitely some who have gone through other programs and decided that they also felt like this would add value. to really? them. Um, and there's and I won't say that, that it's because we're special. Just as a, a side commercial around like the accelerator hopping that happens in, in, in eager, and I get it as a founder. It's just a, kind of a word of caution to um, 
you know, to the entrepreneurs out there that you can get to a point where you've kind of given up a big chunk of your company bouncing from these accelerators. So just make sure that you're, you know what you're getting out of it, like that, that you're clear on what that value proposition that that particular accelerator is giving to you versus, you know, hey, I'm just taking this just because it's, you know, another check um, in the door because I've seen that not go so well for founders and they look around and gosh, they've already given up a third of their company just going through accelerator programs. So what should they be looking for? Because I, I think, yes, there's the initial check, but there's also the promise or specter of more investment. It's like, yeah, I'll take this $100,000 check because I need it now. And also we can raise a hundred, you know, we can raise a million at Demo Day or something yeah. like that. Because you talk about, if I'm a founder right now, freshly started, I know of the accelerators you mentioned, how do I do it the right way and when should I stop? Yeah, I think, well, one, it's it's educating yourself. So talking to other founders that have gone through the program and really pushing them on what value they got out of it. And this is part of the reason that I was attracted to NextCube because I would meet those founders and they would say, hey, 90% of what we covered or the curriculum or education wasn't really relevant to me. 10% was hyper-relevant. And so, and I got a, an investor out of it. So I... I felt like it was worth it, but really, really, I probably only max, you know, leveraged ten percent of what was being was being offered. So, knowing that going in and understanding that, you know, and why you're doing it and being very clear, then you don't walk away feeling like, oh, I didn't get what I wanted. Like you, you went in eyes wide open, and you felt you made that determination. And and for me, I I don't know if there's like never ever a time where you say. I don't no longer need it or I stop. Like if, if you see a program and you're like, oh, that really can help introduce me to like the 10 corporations that I need to get, get connected to because that's my, my business is aligned in that way or they have these advisors who I feel like can really help me move the needle. Like I, I say the, the part of, hey, you could give up a third of your company, but you know, a third of a billion is a lot more than a hundred percent of nothing, right? So if you haven't built anything and you haven't hit those hit those milestones, then what are you really holding on to? So it's it's a tough one. It's a case by case, but just make sure you do your homework, understand what the value proposition is, and understand at what stage of company you're at, and has that accelerator been able to really move the needle for companies that at your stage so if i'm a founder can i have too low you know before is there is there a moment where i'm like okay my equity is, is kind of i know you know i want to keep growing but can it be too small i saw you know a post earlier today on linkedin with all these different percentages do you have any guidance on that or is it just case by case i think it's case case by case i mean how many fa- co-founders do, do you have as a part of it will will play into it i always view it more kind of kind of round by round like if you can stay in that 15 percent 15 to i think 20 percent like at each kind of tranche along the way that you're kind of giving up of your company that feels about right anything more than that i think can get a little a little tricky for you as a as a founder but um again i think you're you're ultimately once you get go down this path, I think some of the founders need to you know, just understand like once you start taking in venture capital and you have a board of directors, like 
you're no longer really the boss of the you know of the company. I mean, you're running the the you're running the business. But if that's something that you real is really important to you, then I I don't suggest going the the VC route. I think you know suggest figuring out another way to fund your your business. Okay. So let's talk traction. And this is not just for founders uh, who are looking at NextCube, but also for emerging managers. Like when you're selling your results, what are the stories you point to? What are the traction? Not just the numbers, but, you know, the qualitative side of it as well. Like talk about the traction that shows you, one, I'm onto something. And two, we should expand and and, and blow this up. Yeah. So um, I think from a Starting with the from the startup perspective, it's again based on your your business. Are you B two B, B two C? I mean, we always say revenue is the best deodorant, right? So if you if you are generating, people are willing to pay for what you're doing, and you can show growth over time, and you have a repeatable sales process, then folks are going to be very interested in what you're in what you're building. Um, so I think from a you know, an entrepreneur perspective, understanding what your KPIs are specifically, not all the times can it be, you know, revenue, it can be kind of growing your, you know, your user base. But at some point, you're going to need to be able to show that people are willing to pay for what you're, you're providing. So the sooner you can bake that into your, your model, the, the better, but, you know, the, the reality is sometimes like you need to have different ways of, of getting there. Um, and so I would say from the, you know, the startup side, it'll be different depending on the, you know, the type of business on the investor side, it really is having, whether that's through angel investing, um, or working for another, you know, firm, being able to kind of show you've been able to identify companies that have eventually been successful at some point and the the metric of success could be they raised another round of capital it's not always that there's been some sort of you know liquidity you know event what other investors are now investing in that company that you know from a brand perspective you can point to and say hey you know look these were deals that that i was in that now you know the big players are, are looking to follow on for and and that is primarily at that early stage investing level that kind of precedes seed. But I always tell folks who are looking to get into the business, you may not have capital to deploy, but you have a network, you have a you have a community, you can start thinking, you know, doing your own research and identifying if I had capital, this is what I, you know, I would have invested in, you know, these companies and document, you know, that and then track it over time. And then you kind of have a, a portfolio on paper that you can start you know, showing people, but, um, yeah. Well, how, did you, ways. how did you get into business? Um, so the job before, uh, next cubed, I was running a company called uh, GSV labs, which was at the time and they've since evolved the model and it's now called one Valley, but it was a, we work plus type, um, situation where we had space in Redwood city that we were, selling as a premium to startups and corporates who were wanting to be in a a very innovative environment with some additional support. So we had mentors and advisors that if you were a startup or or, or a corporate that was looking to 
um, identify new potential tangential businesses that you could get into, you would be in the mix. Like there, it was very much selling the community. Um, and I recognized at that point, a lot of it was, it was a real estate arbitrage play in many cases. We started opening up sites at different you know, locations. That wasn't for me. Um, that wasn't the what got me excited. But what I did realize spending the time that I did it at GSV was I loved working with the founders. Like we were, you know, they were sitting right across the, the way from me. We were, it was very much a, a community that was about supporting, you know, one another. So getting to know the founders, getting to see deals, getting to see what technology was resonating with the investor community that we kind of built around it. That's kind of where I got the, the bug to, um, to be more, not just somebody who could provide them with a space to learn from others, but I could provide capital and you know support. Is community building a good asset to have in VC? I mean, I, I run across analysts who are really good at being able to pick the companies and all that, but it just seems that the higher levels is also some of this like community building component. Uh, so could you talk about that and how you built that <laughs> skill set in yourself? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's it's huge. So I when I first started my career, I was in the nonprofit sector. So I was working to whether it was raise money for nonprofits or in the programming. And when you're doing that, you you are selling community. You're, there's no financial ROI. It's a more of a, a feeling, an, an impact that you think you could have as a as a donor. And and so being able, and I always tell people who are looking to um, pursue kind of for profit, you know, um, opportunities in particular within sales and marketing. I was like, if you can sell a feeling, you can certainly sell this widget, right? And so it was a great experience, you know, for me to start there to where I am now. But I, I do think community building is a huge part of it because the fact of the matter is all all really successful entrepreneurs, whether they went through NextCube, Y Economy, Techstars, whatever it is, they were gonna get there. They were gonna be successful either way what we can do is help them get there faster. Mm. And if I can say, hey, you know what? You should really talk to Abraham because he has a platform and he can help. And I can make that connection for you in 10 seconds versus you having to figure out how you can make that you know, connection. That just saves them time to allow them to focus on their business and get to where they need to be faster. And so that's really, I mean, the you know, it's called an accelerator for a reason. Like we want to get you there in a way that you're not having to figure out everything on your own along the way. You would do it because the successful entrepreneurs just figure it out. But why? Like, why not be able to lean on this larger, you know, community who's been there, can provide you with support and help you get there faster? So what happens after you graduate? I I get a sense people who do graduate, it's a lot, it's intense, it's an accelerant. Yeah. And then there's sort of a cliff sometimes that falls off and people don't feel like there's as much relationship thereafter. Uh, what is the experience like at NextCube and what happens after I graduate? Yeah, I feel like we could do a better job. Um, wow. we, we tell folks that we're here for them. There's always a community. You know, we have digital Slack, you know, that type of thing. But I, it does it does leave a lot on the founder to take the initiative and reach back out to us. And 
I'm a, I'm of two minds, you know, there because, you know, as a as a parent now, I'm going through this process now with my my girls. They're in college. One's getting ready to, you know, graduate, you know, next year, and I want them to know that I'm here to support them. But eventually, they got to do some of this stuff on their, you know, on their own. And if I'm too pushing, like in, inserting myself, am I allowing them to to grow and be, you know, be who they who they are and what they can be kind of maximizing their own, you know, own potential. So we have erred on the side of letting the, our alums know we're here. You could always plug back into us, but we're not. I feel like we could do more to provide that connectivity to make it easier for them to to know, like, this is when I should be reaching out or here's a here's a problem that I know that can the next cube can help me solve. And I don't think we've cracked the the code on what that looks like after the fact i do think now with our kind of procedural things like because of when we're investing we don't have like information rights like the the founders can choose to share with us if they what they like now that we're we're launching this fund and we have follow-on and we're going to have a little bit more kind of access to the to the founder but i don't ever want it to be because there's a legal reason like i want you to feel like hey i should be sharing with you because you can be helpful to me and so I think that's definitely an area of growth for us. Do they think that you're too busy or you have like this celebrity level to you where it's like I don't <laughs> this is too small for, for Mr. Evans. Do you get the sense? That's I hope mean. not. I hope not. I mean if that's the case that I'm doing something really wrong. But uh I, I don't I mean, I I just think it's heads down like they're trying to do what they need to do to get keep their keep their business up and going. Because of the last couple of years of COVID, we weren't doing as many things in, in person, so a lot of it was was virtual um and we invest all over the country so it's not like there was a region where we could go in and get everybody together we have companies all over the all over the map so i think it's just you get into a you get into a routine and it's not always clear how and when is the good time to kind of connect back with with folks but that's just i think a, a tool that i think we all could get get better at i mean there's just talking to someone, I just realized, God, it had been three years since we had connected and it felt like it was yesterday. And somebody else like reconnected us and we're like, wait a second, we actually talked three years ago, but it was all over Zoom. So it wasn't like, I think there's just a different thing that happens when you meet somebody in person and you have that that personal connection. But I think we all could do a better job of kind of cultivating those relationships, just checking in with people, even if there's not something that you necessarily need, just, hey, you know, how you doing? It's been a while. Is there anybody who comes to mind for you that you reach out to in your personal network who got you where you are today or who provided some unexpected value to you? Talk about that person. I was working at the Kip Foundation and I was a, you know, director of partnerships. I was raising, I was a fundraiser. Okay. You know? um, and so I would meet a lot of really like influential folks who had the means to be able to provide, you know, funding to the organization. And that's when I first came across Ronnie, you know, Ronnie Lott, and he had a foundation called All Stars, you know, Helping Kids and was doing great work in the community. And so we were pitching him for, you know, for funding, and they ended up funding a couple of the schools in in San Francisco. And I remember at KIPP, they assigned like these coaches to the, you know, some of the managers in the, in the organization. And I had a first meeting and I'd never had like a management coach or whatever. So this was like 
great for me. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And the woman said, you know, the first thing, you know, my first assignment was back to this cultivating relationships. Like, who are people in your life that you really respect? And I said, well, you know, Ronnie was, you know, someone who I really respect, both as a football player and a man, a parent, a father, the whole, the whole nine, husband. And she's like, well, reach out to him and say, you know, ask him to grab coffee. I'm like, oh, come on. There's no way he's not going to have time. He probably doesn't remember me. She's like, no, you were going to reach out to, to Ronnie. And so I did. And like right away, he's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go have coffee. And so we started meeting like once a month. And I, was, I kept saying to myself, there's no way he's going to have enough time to continue to do this. And sure enough, he did. And then he said, you know what, Marlon, I think you should come run my foundation. I was like, I haven't, I haven't been a senior. Like I'm not a VP at the kid. I'm just the guy who's leading running. the fundraising. Like I, I, not, I don't have the resume to do what you're asking me to do. He's like, no, I think you can do it. And that set me on a trajectory now where, you know, I was the executive director of that foundation. So what do you do after you're the executive director? Like you lead other things. And so that's what I've basically been doing ever since. I hope to be able to do that for, you know, for others, which is why when you said, hey, if people are afraid to reach out to you, like that would just crush me <laughs> because, because I, w- I want to be able to, to do that for, for others. That makes sense. So back to the first conversation with Ronnie. You know, I was tempted to ask, what did you say? But I, I want to ask, what didn't you say or didn't talk about that you think led to more and more conversations, if that question makes sense? Because you get around people and, you know, some people might try to say, well, tell me everything, all the secrets. and the, yeah. What didn't you talk about or did you strategically avoid and did talk about that made that work? Because some pe- not everybody would have made that opportunity work for them. Yeah. Why did it work for you? It worked because Ronnie made it work. He probably spent two minutes talking about himself and the rest asking me about me, like asking me about fame. Like, what do you want to accomplish? What do you what are you all about? What, what's, what's the work that you're doing? Kip? Why does that inspire you? Like he it was always about trying to help me to the point where I was like, Ronnie, how can I help you? <laughs> you know, it's a way of interacting with with people where it's. It's always about, you know, how can I be supportive of you? Because I think you can accomplish all these great... I've already accomplished a lot. And I don't know if this is what's going through his mind or not. But he'd already gotten to a point, you know, in his career where, you know, he'd been highly highly successful both in business and, and in football. And I think he, he was at that place where he was like, well, how can I help other people realize their potential? Um, and so he just made it super easy for me and I, I would find myself well wait a second what did I learn about Ryan like to the secret of six and it never was about that it was about him helping me see m- myself in a different light which I thought was very powerful it is and I have a follow-up and then I want to take it in a different direction uh, because when you're talking about sort of how you got into VC I don't know if a lot of people would just assume that this nonprofit world and crushing it in that space would then lead somebody to jump and, like you said, come out of the gate and say, we're capitalists over here, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> in the accelerator. So could you talk about like 
why this switch still kind of gives you fulfillment on the impact side. That's the follow up. And then I also want to ask about your family because you mentioned your daughters, your wife, who used to be your fiance, who used to be your girlfriend. (laughs) And talk about how they have impacted your professional life and vice versa and how it's created this feedback loop of you being a better father, parent, a better investor, leader, etc. On the impact side, it's just it's. It's in the DNA. First conversation with the board, I was like, I don't know what it looks like now, but we're going to figure it out. And they gave me a lot of flexibility and freedom. And it really took three years for us to figure out like this was our our niche um, in thinking about how we can support diverse, you know, diverse founders. And so there's your job. And then there's a way that you could do your job that you feel like could have a have a larger impact and it could be how you talk to people as a customer service you know agent it could be that you're you have your nine to five but then you're volunteering and doing other things so it's a mentality that I try to bring to this work which I think from you know next cube perspective it's allowed us to kind of carve out a niche in this space where we are capitalists trying to generate a return for our investors, but we're just doing it in a different way. How VC has been done for a hundred years, how we run our capital, like nobody's ever said, hey, you you have to always do it this way. It's just people fall in line and it's like, this has worked and there's a process for us. Let's continue to do it, which is why I really love, you know, working with entrepreneurs and founders because in essence, they're saying there is a way that it's been done before, and I think we found a better way to do it. And here's how, and here's why. Um, so that's what kind of you know excites me about the work that we do, and the fact that we're able to have an impact at the same time. The impact that they can have in their own communities of now people seeing them, people who look like them, who are leading these big companies, and then that inspires them. So there's a a really neat kind of virtuous. Um, cycle that can result and i know you had another question family family (laughs) so um, i guess that starts with you know my my folks my parents um who just originally from trinidad you know came to this country i was on my both of my older brother and my older sister were were born in canada because this is around the time of kind of post civil rights, black folks coming from Trinidad, you go directly into this new world that is, you know, the U.S., do you go to Canada first? So my dad um, ended up studying at McGill and uh, had both my sister and brother, and then they, they found a job, which I learned afterwards, like my mom had no desire to move to, to the States. She was like, seeing what she was seeing, I think she had no desire, but uh, we made it to to Maryland, uh, grew up there. Parents just instilled that kind of work ethic. Academics is in, is important, but really, whatever you're doing, just give it your all, just 100 percent. That type of uh, mentality, and always encouraged us that we could be whatever we you know wanted to be. And and now that I have girls um, or two you know daughters of my my own, trying to kind of instill some of those same you know, values in them, whether it's directly or indirectly, you know, sharing with that same perspective of whatever your passion are, whatever you, whatever your, your largest dreams are, we're going to be here to be supportive of, you know, of that. And um, they kind of keep me, keep me going because I can see, 
I can see the opportunities that they're being exposed to now and that they're being introduced, which gets me really excited about their starting to kind of fulfill their potential, which you know, drives me to be there for them in any way that I can. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Great background. Let's stay here for for just a second. It's got to be a lot of pressure or expectations on them, not just having a father who graduated from Stanford and got invited back to get more people in, but also to have a grandfather who graduated from McGill, which is basically the Stanford of Canada, right? So how do you parent them in a way where they are motivated but not overwhelmed by that hefty sense of you know accomplishment down the line did your parents like imbue in you talk about the parenting bit and if there's any advice or good things we can derive from your approach and your parents approach yeah so i think it gets down to the intrinsic motivation like the all the stuff on the outside oh it's it's stanford or mcgill or you see like what's around you, in particular growing up in this environment, everybody's the CEO of this and that and you know, affluent. I mean, all of that is around them. And if that's what's driving you, more than likely there's gonna be a challenge along the way where you're like, Psh, not worth it. Not worth it. Not worth it. So how did you get that into them? <laughs> how, how do you parent intrinsic motivation? I well part I don't know how you do it. Um, I think what we tried tried to do was just make sure at each step along the way, like this was a decision that you 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 were making, not us. Like if they got it, you know, heavily into sports. So every time that it was like a new season rolling around, it was like there wasn't like an expectation like you were going to do this again. We'll support you if this is what you want to do, but you you're the one that's going to have to put in put in the time to be successful at this. If you want to you know, get this opportunity at school. Like if you want to be the president of the class or if you want a leadership positions, you're going to have to put in that extra time, build relationships, talk to the teacher. Like those were things that I think sometimes as parents, and this gets back to the accelerator model where, yes, it's our job for you to, for us to make it easier for you, but that's not to say it's going to be easy, right? And you have to let them face challenges and go through difficult times and have that conversation in their head is it really worth it so there are times where you would jump in and help but you chose not to exactly exactly and that can manifest itself really early on and i kind of call it for for parents who are having those young kids and it's like the first time they go to the park it's like you want to be locked in focused on them the whole time and they sense that they're like, oh, I can, mommy's, so maybe, maybe I won't try to do this because mommy's looking at me or daddy's looking at me. Whereas if you kind of, I say it from my football days, having like peripheral vision, like you can kind of see them out of the corner of your eye. <laughs> so you can make sure that they don't do something really stupid, but you let them get to that point where they're trying new things on their own. And that starts like at a really early age. It's not, not that it has to happen in the park, but that kind of as an example of, Making sure that you're letting them fall, that you're letting them try new things and not be successful and then have to try it again. Because if it's always like, oh, that didn't work out, peace, let's, let's move on to the next thing, that's not helping anybody. Yeah. And, and it's not that you, you force them to stay into things that they just hate. Like eventually it's like, okay, I'm not gifted at this or this is not something I'm interested in. But I'm on one hand a big believer in, in really encouraging young people to try a lot of things and not say, oh, 
I have to only be this version of myself. But at the same time, I think there is a, a almost a default of like, okay, this week we're in ballet. Next week we're doing track. Next week we're doing football. Like, you get like this sprinkling of everything where you never had to really stick with it long enough to see, <laughs> am I good at it? Is it hard? If it is hard, am I going to keep working at it? And we just kind of pluck them out of those situations as soon as when it gets a little hard. And and not that we were perfect at, a, at all, but given that both my wife and I were athletes, like we we wanted them to suffer a little bit. <laughs> it was okay to like not win. It was okay to like, you know, not always, you know, come out on top. And I think that helped them in the long run. So they're resilient now in your opinion. I think, I mean, I, I think there's a, there's a level of now that they're at their point in 18 and almost 21, like they've, they've been through a lot of challenges and not that they don't, they're going to continue to, you know, continue to face those. But I think they're at a point now where they feel like a sense of self, which makes both of us feel, you know, really proud to be mom and dad. So talk about, we're talking about struggles, low moments. Uh, you have many of them as an athlete, I'm yeah. sure. Talk about some of the low moments that you had. People want to know that, you know, they, <laughs> uh, they hear a lot of great things. They're like, yeah, it was the hockey stick up and to the right. We overcame this. We did this. We did this. But was there a time where you doubted yourself a little bit or what you were doing or your mission or where it was like that kind of cru- the walls coming in on you? You didn't know how you're going to get out of it. Talk about that moment and the transition that you had out of it because clearly you did. Yeah. Well, I'll do, I'll give one example as an athlete and then one uh, from the business world. But so when I came out of you know, high school, like most folks, if you're being recruited and the DMV is not a small community, but, you know, you, you can be a kind of a big fish in a small pond type thing. I get to Stanford and it's like, whoa, you know, everybody can play. Everybody can ball. I'm going to have to really step my game up. And so as a freshman, I retroed it, didn't play, which was like, you know, okay, I was getting acclimated. I felt that was a good, good call for me. And then my sophomore year, I'm like, I'm ready to, I'm ready to roll, and I still wasn't getting an opportunity, you know, to play. And I'm like, well, wait a second, this is, this wasn't the plan, right? This wasn't how it was all supposed to come together. And I'll never forget, um, it's kind of midway through the season, I'm not playing. My dad comes out, and he's like, I want to meet, meet the coach, and. I don't know if this would ever happen now, if this continues to happen. I know I wouldn't do that. Um, but he's like, I want to look the coach now because I want to see like what, what this is all about. So we sat down we had the meeting. The coach said, oh, you can work on this, blah, blah, blah. My dad gets out of the meeting. He's like, son, you should transfer. You're not going to ever play with it for this guy. Wow. And that was the first time I, that I couldn't remember when I said, you know what, dad? I'm not listening to your advice. I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick with it. It was probably the best decision that I made because I would have not married my wife, you know, the whole thing, you know. Um, But it was it was like a it was the moment where I had to say, okay, this is going to be hard. It's it's not what I expected, but I'm going to see this thing through. And, you know, thankfully, while it didn't work out for me, my my sophomore year, I started getting time my junior and, and then I stayed a fifth year and it was you know, I can look back on that moment and say it was like my my adult moment, right? Dad was telling me one thing, it was hard, 
and all the stuff that he poured into me up until that point allowed me to make you know make that decision for myself so that was one point i i can speak to which was a really low point because when you're your buddies are like, oh, Stanford's on. What, are you going to be playing? Well, I'll be standing next to the coach. <laughs> Maybe I'll get on the screen in the background and wave behind the coach. <laughs> and they were, and it was hard. Like you would go back home and on breaks, like are you playing? No, nah, still, still not playing. And then in within the you know the community, just you know other athletes being highly successful, and you were like, gosh, it's just not happening for. It's not happening for me. And so that was a really hard time and then for my dad to tell me to throw in the towel like was really was really tough and then from on the business you know side of things i think when i got to gsv and i was this was the first time kind of me the ceo of a for-profit you know company and having to deal with the board i realized that there were certain things that i could there's certain things that i had control over and there were other things that i just didn't right and even though you were sitting in that chair like as you know ceo which is why like I feel like I can empathize with with the founders that once you get a board, once you get investors, like it's not always gonna be the vision that you had for the you know, for the company. And I and I always felt like a tension, you know, with that, that I'm here, I'm learning a lot, but decisions are being made for me and I don't not always in agreement with those, you know, with those decisions. So for for me it was a it was a low in the sense of here I was thinking I made it, like I'd gotten to this role as a, a, you know, as a CEO of a company that was growing or it was raising capital, and I didn't feel I felt more fulfilled when I was working at the Kip Foundation, not making a lot of money hmm. and knocking on you know doors to encourage parents to send their kids to to a gift school. Like I wasn't feel like I I had made it, but I wasn't feeling really good about when I put my hat down at the end of the day that. I was doing something that was going to be, you know, more impactful beyond, you know, generating more money for our shareholders. Mm. And I, I probably stayed longer than I should. Why? You know, you get to a place where you're just like, you look around and you say, most folks at my stage of career would be cutting off their arm to be in the situation that I'm in now. And here I am like, oh, I don't want to do this. This isn't fulfilling to me. You know, like you, you start making these like excuses for yourself and what you're and what you're doing that you think, one, I should be thankful for what I what I have. And two, you know, the grass isn't always going to be greener. So I don't know what, you know, what that unknown, you know, feels like. So you kind of just stay within yourself and you don't you're not willing to take a a risk and I got to the point where I had to and I was at a point in my career now I have other responsibilities mortgage the whole thing and I was telling my wife and I was like I'm done I can't I'm not doing this anymore and she's like all right cool like what's the plan I'm like no I have a plan (laughs) she's like I don't know if I like this (laughs) this new Marlin (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you have a supportive spouse and family. I think that's huge. And I'm noticing a trend with folks who are really making it there. They do have that support system. Uh, you mentioned, though, at that low moment, reporting to the board, them having different views of it. It can be easy to spend money, you know, yeah. as a founder to go through it. You know, you it takes a lot to raise it. But then, you know, all of a sudden, everything that has a price tag on it looks a bit attractive to you. Not everybody. But if you were talking to a founder who just got a million dollars dropped into their bank account, 
in what ways would you be expecting them to think about spending that money responsibly, especially if they're going to have to report to a board or explain it later? I know there's a budget and all that that you typically send, but you know, from your perspective, how would you view somebody in that situation and what they should do? Yeah, I mean, spend it like it's your money, like it's your account. Like if you were thinking about how you have this million dollars that's in your account, how long is it going to need? You're going to need to last. Always assume that you need to make it last longer because fundraising always takes longer than than you expect. Understand that it's a tool for you to get to to that next stage it's not you didn't win right you won in the sense that you you got the funding but it's the funding is supposed so that you can do x y and z nobody is really rewarding you well in some respects they are they're rewarding you because you got to this point but they're giving you the money so that you can get to the next stage it's not so that you can be like yeah hey this was like the the prize for getting to my series a like no the prize is now you have to get to your series B, which, you know, it's just a different, you know, it's hard, hard to, to understand because like, well, wait a second, I've been working all this time. And it's like, this is going to be a grind ongoing. Right. And hopefully you're doing something that you love that gets you up every morning where you're getting value out of the process. And it's not this this end goal that you're waiting for that kind of pot of uh, money at the end of the rainbow. What are you most excited about in Redwood City and the startup ecosystem there? For people who don't know Silicon Valley, what does it mean to be in Redwood City versus Mountain View versus Palo Alto or these other places? What does it mean and what are you most excited about? It's all the same. I mean, Redwood City is just one community or another. Go up to San Francisco. It's all the all the same. I think, you know, right now there's a, a obviously a real excitement around AI and what that can mean for new businesses and new opportunities and what is what is the next like phase of of innovation look like um if it's being driven in this way and so i think that there's this sense that there's something coming and so that's that's always exciting and wanting to make sure that we're positioning our portfolio and by extension our founders to take advantage of those those opportunities and to see around, you know, around the corner where not that it, it ever feels like, you know, here that it's business as, as usual, but it definitely feels like we're at this inflection point and, you know, the folks who are able to, to figure it out are going to do really well and are going to be able to have influence on what this innovation looks like moving forward. So if you had to leave Silicon Valley and go to another startup ecosystem, where would you go? Both in the United States and overseas. So the GSV stood for Global Silicon Valley. So I'll tackle that second part later where we were traveling all over the world looking at different ecosystems. Um, one of the places where I think it's super exciting and we actually have done some work with NextCube is Singapore, kind of as this gateway to to Asia, we kind of call it like in Asia for dummies, like you can <laughs> kind of figure out like who you are, what you are, and then you can kind of expand more broadly. So I think there's a lot of neat stuff going on there. The government provides a lot of funding and um, it's just a, a neat ecosystem to kind of innovate because you have a lot of diversity, you know, there as well. So you can kind of figure out if something works there, it's likely going to be able to work elsewhere. So 
if I was going somewhere else outside of the U.S., I'd go. I would. I would say Singapore. Domestically, now that everything is so you know virtual, I don't know if you have to pick up and move to feel like you're plugged into the ecosystem. So, do you feel like you know if you were back in Maryland, anything would change? If you were in the South, things would change, or in New York, like what would change if you did go to a new place? Um, I think the access to capital is is the biggest part. I mean, there are these ecosystems, whether you're talking about Miami or Austin, um, even the you know the D.C. area. I mean, there's there's capital there, but there's nothing like here. Um, Boston maybe can 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 start um, you know getting into that category, but um, just in terms of the number, the sheer number of potential, in particular the VC you know community, but even more so like founders who launched companies and now starting new things, like it's it's just in the it's baked in, and oftentimes like when we were you know looking at expanding it. At GSV, all of those other cities were like, we are going to be the Silicon Valley of China. We're going to be the Silicon Valley of Brazil. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really hard to kind of uh, replicate that. But what I will say just from a, you know, a community perspective of, of hopefully people starting to come, getting together on a more regular basis, because I think there's a lot of value you know, in that we're not great at that here. And, you know, so kind of like going to San Francisco, I was like, if you're on the peninsula, it's like, ah, maybe not. It's, it's a 45 minute drive. Maybe I'm not going to, not going to do that. And so, um, I think other communities are going to have an advantage in that respect of people coming together and kind of rubbing shoulders and learning from one another. Wow. That. I mean, I'm, I'm just taken aback by that. Uh, and I'm wondering if it's more competitive as a fund to raise out here or if it's actually because so much money is circulating that you found you would be more successful in Redwood City than you would be in Upper Marlboro. Yeah. Well, I think the the Silicon Valley does carry some values. If you're saying you're a Silicon Valley fund and you're trying to raise money globally, like there's still some cachet you know, around that. So to say that you have connectivity into this ecosystem, because ultimately there's several kind of constituents that you're working with. You have the founders, so you you need to have the deal flow, but then you also need to be able to syndicate other investors to come to the table and, and invest. So you need to be able to build those relationships and they need to be you know, trusting of you to say, hey, you should be in this deal. You know, we want to bring you, you know, along. You can provide this value that. And so some of that kind of relationship building, I think, is key to have the connectivity here just because, as I mean, just the sheer numbers. But, you know, absent that, I think you can really be, you know, anywhere as an investor. That makes sense and have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. This has been a great one. It really has. Uh, I've enjoyed it and learned a lot more about you and your approach. And I'm not surprised at all with how you're able to stretch and push the envelope a little bit in your model and still get a lot of success. It's a very personal touch. And that is what I remember way back when, when I was getting introduced to Next for the first time. So this is coming full circle. Uh, and the penultimate question, the last one uh, is hopefully a softball for you, but uh, you've answered this in, in many ways throughout the conversation. 
what is the most valuable thing that you do for your companies who are coming through your accelerator, you know, meeting you for the first time or continuing? What's the most valuable thing for a startup founder or a founding team once they link up with NextCube that you do? I would say it's just honesty and and transparency. Just saying, hey, look, we're we're going to be honest with you. Our and this is our perspective. Like, understand that this is one group or one platform's you know opinion on where you are with your business and what are some of the things that you could do to kind of move the the needle but ultimately these decisions are in your your corner we're not going to make these decisions for you we're just going to provide you with data with information with kind of lessons learned and give you that perspective and then it's your call and i don't know if if that's always the case with other other programs where either they're trying to help the 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 founder with their own motives like they have this is exactly what I want to see happen for this this company or if it's on the flip side they're just blowing a lot of smoke just to get into the deal and then once they're there they cross their fingers and they hope you know like we want to be honest and transparent with all the founders go through and I hope that is a value you know to them as they are then going out making those really critical decisions for their business it sounds like it so if i'm listening to this right now and i want to keep in touch with you reach out where do i apply what do i need to know how do i talk to you yeah, so um, talking to, to me, connect over LinkedIn is probably the best way to uh, to do that. If you're an HBCU founder, we kind of have two pathways for you. Our, our 501c3 is more targeted towards uh, current students who are really just trying to understand if, if their idea has, has potential and they're interested in building an entrepreneurial mindset. That's a great place. And we run two accelerators um, every year, one in the fall and one in the spring. And so they can go to hbcufi.org and find out all the information on plugging into our, our programs there. If they're already an established you know, startup and they're out there in the market and they're trying to make it happen, again, with, with HBCU uh, founders, if they go to our uh, website, nex3.com, they can find all the information. Basically, it's submitting an interest an interest form and we ask for a deck like we one thing we do, do is n- try not to put people through a lot of hoops if they're not ultimately going to be you know competitive in the pool so that's the first starting point is just to get your deck in give us a little information about your company and then we'll we'll circle back with you that sounds great i'm really excited about the hbcu community having a resource such as this and i expect many more successes coming through i think a lot of people are looking at this now as a way to really expand you know, access and deal flow and returns. Cause I think there, you know, there, you know, being an HBCU graduate myself, there's a lot of potential there for sure. Uh, so like I said, I've enjoyed this conversation and I want to give you an opportunity to give us with the last imparting word. Yeah. So lately I've been reflecting on, we have a pitch competition coming up um, on Friday in DC for our uh, 10 of the companies that went through our, our nonprofit program. And one of the things that I want to stress for for everybody who's in attendance at, at the event, both the startups, the founders, investors, et cetera, is don't be afraid of doing hard things. Mm-hmm. And 
for the people out there who are saying, well, I don't know what that is for me. Don't be afraid of finding people who are doing hard things and helping them. Like if, if that's all you, if that's all you did, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to start your own company or you have to do this, but there are people out there who are trying to do some really big things and could use some help could use some support and you may be that person who has that ex- expertise or who knows that contact who could really be a game changer who could be that coach who said to me go ask Ronnie Lott for coffee and have a change your life like look for opportunities to help people do hard things because we have some really big challenges out there both as a community and just as a world and if we're not kind of really vigilant about that, and if we're not helping people do hard things, I'm concerned. <laughs> and so that's, I'm not sure if that made any sense, but that's what I've been reflecting on lately, just you know, finding out how I can be a resource to people who are, who are doing really hard things that are gonna have an impact on the world. It does make sense, and thank you for sharing that. And best of luck in the demo day. Yes, Friday, it, uh, we're hosting it at the National African American History Museum. Um, so if you're in the D.C. area, I don't know when this is going to be airing, you probably will have missed it, but um, we're hoping to do it every year. Okay, that sounds good. Like I said, this has been super valuable, I think, for the ecosystem and a unique voice, and who knows what the future holds for you. I'm sure much success. Until next time, we bid you adieu. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.